We're going to come before the Lord in prayer and then we're going to uh, start looking in the book of James. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new day, a new day to know and experience your mercies, a new day to grow nearer to you, to learn more about who you are and what you have provided for us, how you are all-sufficient for every need, including the ones that we're yet to even recognise. Lord, we thank you that your word is given to us to reveal yourself, to sometimes hold up a mirror to our own wicked and evil hearts, but with your good purpose to shape us and to form us to become more like your son. And we pray that by your spirit that you would achieve that amongst us in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we move into 2022... People make their resolutions. People have got all sorts of little plans. In the Christian environment, often as people start to think about what would I like to see different in this year, it is common and it is good that people think, I just want to have a closer relationship with Jesus. Every Christian desires to grow. When you come to Christ, he places his Holy Spirit within us who wants to transform us and to change us, to mature us and to grow us. If anything, I think it should raise questions within ourselves if we don't have a desire to grow nearer to Jesus. But today as we begin in our series in James, we are looking at the topic of opportunities for growth. Now, when you think about spiritual growth, you rightly think about things like reading your Bible, praying, having fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are things that you should think about. God has given us these things for your growth and for your benefit. They are essential for your growth and for your spiritual maturity. So much so, I'd say they are so essential that to lack in any of those three will be to your spiritual detriment. And when I was thinking about that throughout the week, it reminded me of something that a friend of mine, also pastor of Hope Reformed Baptist Church down in Underwood, Tom Ford, shared a while ago, and it kind of summarised things well. He says, before we over-assess and complicate things, If you're struggling with joy, assurance, holiness, patience and love, ask yourself, are you reading the word like a desperate animal pants for water? And are you praying regularly, not with ease, but with discipline, like someone who schedules their meals? If not, let's not over-diagnose. It's the simple things that you're neglecting. Isn't it strange how sometimes when we're concerned about our spiritual growth and spiritual well-being and we don't even think about how we're going in the fundamental things that God has provided for that purpose. However, today, they're not the three things that we're looking at. In fact, as we look to the text that we've just had read, we are looking at three opportunities for growth in areas that we often overlook. 
We're looking at the opportunities for growth in the middle of trials. Looking for opportunities for growth by asking God for wisdom. The opportunities for growth that are afforded in financial humility. As we look at James, it's quite a simple book to understand. It's quite easy to read. It's very practical. But it's not a simple book to apply. It's quite challenging as it it exposes our hearts and some of our actions. But before we open up any book of the Bible, there's some questions we should ask. That we rightly understand the material that we're reading. Questions about who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they were writing to, when did they write it. Because those things affect how we understand the content that's within it. So this morning we're going to look at the background and setting. We're also going to look at how we can grow through trials, wisdom, financial humility. And wrap it up with grow you good thing. So firstly, the background and setting. Now, it's a, it's a pretty obvious question. Who wrote James? Now, you might think, well, it's called James. How much simpler can, can it get? But let's not forget, First and Second Timothy weren't written by Timothy, nor was Titus written by Titus. However, most New Testament letters, they are named after the person who writes them, who introduces themselves in the opening verse, where we have James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is this James? He's a servant of God. But what James? There's about three Jameses that I can think of who get mentioned in the New Testaments. You've got James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve disciples. James, the son of Alphaeus. And you've got this James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. Sometimes referred to as James the Just. After Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown, the response from the people was, is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So this guy was not one of the twelve disciples, but he was someone who was the biological son of Joseph and Mary, who would have grown up with Jesus. However, despite this close connection to Jesus and despite having access to Jesus for a longer period of time than even the 12 disciples did, John chapter 7 verse 5 says that none of Jesus' brothers believed in him. The people who saw him from his young years, growing up, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he says he was. Now, somewhere between Jesus' resurrection and an ascension, a period of 40 days, that changed for James and for all of the brothers. As Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, about all the appearances of Jesus, one of the places says he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. In the opening chapter of Acts, where you see people gathered in the open upper room, the believers gathered together and praying, preparing for Jesus and his ascension. You have James and his brothers. They're counted amongst the believers there. 
So who is this James? He's the half-brother of Jesus, one who, before his death on the cross, didn't believe in Jesus, who afterwards, after the resurrection, came to faith in Christ and also became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now Eusebius, who was a historian, he records a testimony about James by a guy named Hegesippus. Add that to your list if you're going to have a boy coming up soon, Hegesippus. And he said this of James. James used to enter alone into the temple and to be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like camels because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking for forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. Wouldn't that be good if that could be said of us? Not because we want to be, have everyone walk past and go, ah, oh, here's Mr. Camel Knees. But that we would be such diligent people of prayer that we would spend much time recognising we are in dependence upon God for all things. James was a godly man. He was a humble man. He was a man of much prayer. In Ian Bounds, who writes a number of books around prayer, one of the things I remember him saying is, he who spends little time with God does little for God. He says, he who is little with God does little for God. Now, even though James was a humble man, he could have described himself in all sorts of grand terms. He could have started a letter, James, brother of Jesus, grown up with him, head of the Jerusalem church. Yet he chooses James, a servant of God. That's his true identity. If you are in Christ, that is your true identity. All of your achievements, all of your things that you've attained and credentials in this world are not your identity. You are a servant of God if you belong to him. And that is what you should want to be known for. So when did he write? Well, James was martyred in 62 AD, so pretty safe to presume it was before then. In Acts 15, when we read about the Jerusalem Council, when they were deciding what to require of Gentile believers as they placed their trust in Jesus, James was overseeing that council, which took place in 48 to 49 AD. The fact that James doesn't touch on any of those issues would suggest that James was writing before then. So most scholars believe it's somewhere sort of early to mid-40s, making it probably one of the first New Testament letters that were written. And other than the book of Acts, because it is an early book, because of the issues that he addresses, gives us some insight into some of the issues that were facing the early church. So who's he writing to? Well, again, like most New Testament letters, that's explained in the beginning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. He was writing to those who were Jewish Christians who had scattered. Now, if you remember when we went through the book of Acts, after Stephen was stoned, 
Such a great persecution arose that all of the Christians scattered except for the apostles, preaching the word of God as they went. But life for these scattered Christians wasn't easy. They'd left their home. They were probably quite poor as a result of leaving everything behind. They were even being persecuted by fellow Jews. So why did James write the letter? Well, James covers so many things within the letter. It's kind of hard to pinpoint. He's saying he's doing it to address this one situation. Like our summary title for this series is Faith That Works. It's a very practical letter of of writing to a people who are suffering under trials and persecution, not only to encourage them in the middle of that, of who their God is, but encourage them how to practically apply that faith in the middle of those circumstances. The hardship that they were facing was very prevalent and gets the first thing that James speaks about, the opportunity to grow through your trials. Verses 2 to 4 will kind of do two things. They remind us of the certainty that we will face trials, but also they remind us of what is a right response to them and how they can actually serve for our spiritual benefit and maturity. But imagine you were heading into Brisbane, you go along the Warrego Highway or the Darren Lockyer Way, whatever certain parts of it are called, and there up on the bullboard, billboard someone read the signs count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds i reckon the average person who drove past that billboard would say steve or james you have lost the plot who seriously would expect us to consider it all joy or pure joy if you've got an niv to experience not only just trials, but all sorts of different trials. Trials are a certainty. The verse doesn't say, if you experience trials, but when. Just like when Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus wasn't backwards either. He didn't say, if you come to me, I'll give you an easy life. You'll never have any health problems. You'll never have any difficulty. There'll be no trials. Like even last week when we were working through our last for this year in our Promises series of God, when we we looked at the promise, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. There is no claim that means you'll be free from never experiencing trials. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, guaranteed. But what is a trial? You could think of it in a sports sense. You could think of it in a medical sense or an educational sense. A trial serves to test how good something is. It tests the quality of something. So not only tries going to happen, but James tells us they are necessary 
and have a good purpose in the life of God's children. Because he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The first thing he says, you know. You've experienced firsthand in the middle of trials, if you remain steadfast, if you stand firm, if you cling to him in faith, it will produce a good maturing work within you. It will produce steadfastness. Nobody wants a a faith that's sort of up and down all over the shop like a roller coaster. We want a steadfast faith. And James says, if you remain steadfast in trials, it will have its good and perfect work. There is opportunity for growth and maturity that you might be complete, lacking nothing. Anyone who's been through hard times and has clung dearly to Jesus in those times can testify of God's promise definitely comes true. That it has its good and perfect work. We had a couple in the church that I was pastoring down in Victoria. Um, His wife... His mother had passed away from motor neurone disease. She started to show a few symptoms herself that kind of looked that way and that was her biggest fear that that would be her diagnosis too. But the early results they got back said, no, that's not it, we'll look at something else. Only for some time down the track, that actually became her diagnosis. They'd got it wrong earlier on and the thing that she didn't want to be the reality... She was relieved that it wasn't because she was told that it wasn't the case. became the reality. And the way that both her and her husband clung to Christ in the middle of that, they can testify without doubt of how it brought them closer to him and to greater immaturity. To have its full effect, perfect and complete, lacking nothing by clinging to him. Trials are an opportunity for growth. There is promised blessing by remaining steadfast, by standing firm. So James says, so let steadfastness have its full effect. Steadfastness will have a good effect, so let it. God wants to use your trials to mature you and to grow you, so let him. Now, I'm not saying that trials alone, the trial itself is good or the trial itself is beneficial. But as we cling to Jesus in the middle of that, there is benefit. As we learn to stand steady in him, as we see and experience his goodness and his sustenance. And it's for this reason James can say, consider trials all joy. Because as you cling to him, you can grow in a way that you will not grow in any other context. It's like what Paul says to the Roman church. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We grow as we cling to him in the middle of trials. Trials are not your enemy. Trials are an opportunity for you to grow in steadfastness and maturity. The second of our opportunities for growth is through asking God for wisdom. Now when you talk about wisdom, often people think it means knowing stuff. Simply knowing stuff does not equate to wisdom. You can know all sorts of things and not be wise. For example, Richard Dawkins is a very intelligent man. He knows lots of things. He is not remotely wise. Psalm 111. Psalm 111. The psalmist tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The psalmist says the first step to wisdom is having a good, healthy fear of God. Rightly recognising that God is God. He is the good and perfect king of this world who is worthy of all honour and praise. But he says, wisdom isn't just knowing that. Wisdom is practising that. What you know to be true of God and who he is and what he has called us to do, putting that into practice in faith. And James says to his readers, if you lack wisdom, and guess what all of us do, he says, ask God who gives generously. Ask the constantly giving God who gives generously without reproach. This is a prayer God loves to answer. If you want to have a prayer to bring before God that you, and you think, oh, my prayers don't get answered, here's a good one. Because God loves to answer it. Remember when Solomon asked for wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this, that is, for wisdom. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and haven't asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Our God takes joy in granting wisdom. But, as James tells us, there are conditions. It says, if you ask him for wisdom, you should ask him in faith, believing that this God wants and can give you that wisdom. Not just a better understanding of who he is, but the enablement to be able to walk in light of what is true about him and what he calls us to do. Not doubting, not saying, oh, God will, but, you know, I'll... I'll figure out the other half myself. As the writer of Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever should draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Like doubt is often 
put forward as being the opposite of faith. Here James says it's like a person who is tossed around by the waves. Now I've been on a roller coaster with both of my girls the very first time they ever did it. I think Miller probably would have been five her first time. Kenzie's was probably when she was four. I can tell you now, despite the fact there was all these safety things on them, I had a very firm grip on those kids. They weren't going anywhere. Even if all safety things went, they were secure. They were going nowhere. I was holding on very strong. Faith is having a strong grip on God. Saying, I am going nowhere without you. Wherever you go, I go. I'm going to trust in nothing else than you and you alone. Doubt, on the other hand, is that letting go is like, no, I think I've got this bit. I don't, I don't need you. And James says the sort of person that sort of vacillates between the two said, shouldn't expect. If you're not clinging to the source of the one who gives all good things, why would you expect to receive? He's the one who gives, but we must take hold and we must apply. The person who switches between trusting God and doubt will be unstable in all that they do. We grow by standing firm in trials. We grow by asking for wisdom. And thirdly, we grow through financial humility. Verses 9 to 10 wouldn't make a lot of sense to most people in the world. Because we live in a world that says, get as much as you can while you can. Now, the reason why I've taken NIV just for one verse, not because it says something different than the NIV, it just says it a bit, a bit clearer and easier to understand. The brother in his humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. He says the person who hasn't got much should take pride in that high position of not having much because it causes you to depend upon God in all things. And that's a good thing. But he says to the person who is much, he should take pride in that low position. Recognise that is a low position. It's not a high thing. It's not something to depend upon. That seems like strange words to most of the world. It reminds me of the words in Proverbs chapter 30. Where he says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. What the author of Proverbs is saying is, Give me enough so that I will not be tempted to dishonour you by trying to get things by means that are not honouring to God. But he also says, don't give me so much that I'll come so confident that I can attain whatever I want by my resources and my money that I forget to trust my God. He says, just give me enough to get by but so that I trust in you. Or to take the words of Jesus 
and his prayer that he's taught his disciples, give us today our daily bread. Put us in a position where we don't need to look elsewhere, but also put us in a position where we don't become self-sufficient, confident in our own resources. There's no point living for the pursuit of money. The scriptures repeat this thing. You can't take it with you. It's like the flowers of the field that come to nothing. To think or depend too much on your financial status will always be a hindrance to your growth. To be content with a little, to place your trust in him for all things, see his provision, will help with you with growth. But if you're to be financially secure and recognise the pitfalls that potentially present you in that situation, not to place your trust in them, but to place your trust in him is an opportunity to grow. So stand firm, remain steadfast, receive the crown of life, remain steadfast under trials, ask God for wisdom, and be financially humble. So grow you, good thing. I said every Christian wants to grow. And we should want to grow. It's a God-given desire. It's a desire of his spirit within us. God has promised in Philippians 1.6 the very thing which he has begun within us, he will bring about to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So continue in the word. As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. Pray without ceasing. Don't neglect the meeting together and having fellowship with one another. And by that I don't just mean a Sunday morning event. But also don't miss the often overlooked means of growth and blessings that can be found even in the middle of hardships. That when we're facing trials, whether trials that you are facing right here and now in this week, or the ones that will come because we're told that we will experience trials in this life, we need to remember a few things. Firstly, no temptation you will ever experience in life is anything other than what is common to every other human being. That's what God tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And he says, and God will provide the way of escape. Now by that, that doesn't mean God's going to push you out the escape hatch. It means God is sufficient. He will provide if you trust in him. But you need to trust. You need to cling. And he promises he will get you through. But also remember this. No situation, no hardship you ever face will ever be bigger than your God. Your God is bigger than anything you could ever possibly imagine as the worst case scenario in your life. And the God who has all power, all rule and authority, he says, let steadfastness have its full effect. That his people might be able to declare, 
I will not rob myself of the opportunity to grow by choosing not to remain steadfast in the middle of my trials. If you say, if I stand firm and I cling on to you, you will supply everything I need, I know you can deliver. And in the middle of that trial, I will ask you for wisdom in faith. That I might fear you rightly and I might rightly apply what I know to be true of who you are, what you have done and what you have called me to do. And that I will trust you regardless of my financial situation, whether I have much, whether I have a lot, that you alone are all that I need. 2022 looks good with God. Not because it's 2022, not because I'm claiming this to be some sort of prophetic word, but merely because our God is unchanging. Our God has all rule, power and authority. He is bigger than any trial you will ever face. And you know what? Even the biggest things that we may face in this year or in years to come, he says, hold on to me. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be complete and lacking nothing. This is our God. He wants us to grow. We want to grow May we allow him to work in and through us in all times. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that sometimes we are like someone tossed around like the waves, that we might stand steadfast for a certain time and then we decide, not too much. We don't let you do the good work that you desire to do, that whose outcome we actually want. We want to grow. Yet we confess sometimes we starve ourselves of the opportunity to grow through our lack of faith by letting go of the only one who can sustain us through those times. The very one who is by the completed work of Christ done everything needed to provide for all of our needs. Lord, help us to trust. Help us to remain steadfast that we might let you do that good work. And as you do that wonderful good work amongst your people, we might grow in understanding how sufficient you are, how powerful you are, and how good you are to your children. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who'd like to read ahead, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 27 next week.